Father God in heaven, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to us your Son, just as your Son, by the Spirit, reveals you to us. In your name, amen. In April 2016, Prince tragically died. He was 57. Can you believe it? That's three and a half years ago. After selling over 100 million records, he had an estimated two to 300 million fortune. But he had no heirs, and more importantly, he had no will. Six people stepped up claiming to be his children. What do you make of their claims? Uh, The first claimed to have been adopted by Prince, uh, but he couldn't provide any evidence. He couldn't even provide any evidence that they'd ever met. (laughs) The second claimed that his mother had a relationship with Prince, but again, provided no evidence. The third suspected Prince was her father, based on, I quote, a general description of my mother's life and my own lifelong fascination with Prince. Something to go on, isn't it? The fourth said that his mother inferred in a conversation that she'd had a relationship with Prince. Sadly for him, his mother denied the claim. The fifth said that his mother had told him that his father was a very smart and intelligent man. And that is all the evidence he submitted. The sixth was the only claimant to be named. Uh, He he was named because he was in prison at the time, so take what you will from that. Carlin Williams was ordered to take a DNA test. The result showed a 0.00% chance that he was Prince's son. However, he believed that that test did not necessarily discount his claim. Perhaps he was hoping that the third decimal point would go his way. Would you have accepted any of those claims? You won't be surprised to find out that none of them got any of the fortune. Our passage this morning deals with a claim that Jesus makes. He claims that he is God's son, that God is his father. And the passage that we've just had read to us and that we're going to look at now shows us multiple testimonies that both Jesus and John, who wrote this gospel, point to in order to evidence that claim. Uh, So firstly, we're going to look at the healing. Uh, John tells us that Jesus goes to a pool in Jerusalem uh, where a great number of sick people used to congregate. It it seems that there was a religious superstition that, that you could be made better at that pool. Out of all of these people... Jesus sees and approaches one man. He's been sick for 38 years. It's not a 24-hour sick bug. He's truly ill. In fact, if you look at verse 5 and verse 7, if you keep your Bibles that you hopefully have open, John chapter 5, verse 5 and 7, he's called the invalid, literally the sick one. That's his identity. He is sick Uh, But after 38 years of illness, in verse 8, Jesus simply speaks to him. Get up. Pick up your mat 
and walk. And what happens? He does. Everything changes. He goes from sickness to health. He's no longer the sick one. You can see that in verse 10 and verse 11 and verse 13 and verse 14 and verse 15. He's referred to consistently as the man who had been healed. His whole life has changed. Multiple times in this gospel, we've already seen that John has pointed to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And as he heals this man, there's another allusion to an Old Testament passage. Back in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah foretells what the world will look like when the Messiah comes. And he says, then, when the Messiah comes, the lame will leap like deer. And this man, the healed one, literally leaps like a deer. Can you imagine? 38 years. But as he leaps like a deer past the Jewish leaders, they miss the point. They should recognize that this healing means the Messiah has come. But instead, they're only concerned, in verse 10, with the fact that all this happened on the Sabbath and that he's breaking their law. It's worth pointing out that he wasn't breaking any biblical law he simply wasn't complying with the tradition that was made up of 39 separate things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath, including picking up your mat and walking, even if you'd just been healed after a 38-year illness. In verse 11, when the leaders find out that someone else had told him to pick up his mat and walk, well, they're less concerned with this one-off case of law-breaking and instead, they turn their attention to finding whoever it was that is inciting insurrection and authorizing others to, to break the law indiscriminately. And in verse 16, when they eventually find out that it was Jesus, they began to persecute him. Here in John chapter 5 is the beginning of the end for Jesus. And in the face of this persecution, Jesus defends himself. See that in verse 17? It's as if he's answering a, a legal charge. Now, you may well know that Jesus has disputes about the Sabbath in all of the Gospels, including other ones in John. But here, he answers those charges in a very particular way. A common Jewish thought at the time accepted that God didn't rest on the Sabbath. How could he? Otherwise, once a week, the whole world would just collapse. God isn't a six-day-a-week God. He's, he's full-time. And his persecutors pick up on what Jesus says in his defense in verse 17. Look at verse 17. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Jesus says, well, God works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. Those that he's speaking to, look at verse 18, they, they understand what he's saying. Their mere persecution gives way to murderous plotting because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, that healing in John chapter 5, the, the, that first section, 
gives the context for Jesus' claim in the next section. We've seen in this gospel, in John chapter 20, at the end of his gospel, he gives us an ultimate purpose that he has in mind. John writes these things that you, that's the readers of the gospel, which means this morning, that's us, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This sign, this miracle, and Jesus' teaching is included for that purpose. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you've been coming here for a little while, uh, maybe this is the first time you've been to church for years, maybe you're, you're only here this morning because uh, Reese and Libby uh, are having this celebration for Noah, it is fantastic that you're here and we're all about to have the privilege of listening to Jesus explain God is his father and that he is equal with him. Jesus' answer is going to be really clear. He's not setting himself up as a rival to God. He isn't in any way challenging God. He isn't saying there are two gods. What we're about to hear here is the claim of Christ. I would urge you this morning to listen And to make your own assessment of this claim, we're going to go through these next 11 verses carefully, verse by verse, making sure we understand exactly what it is that Jesus was claiming. Because if his claim is true, then we must respond. Someone once said that Jesus was either mad, bad, or God. Well, in this passage we can conclude that Jesus couldn't possibly be bad. He he couldn't possibly have lied because what he said, he died for. You wouldn't lie about something and then die. So here we're left with two choices. Either everything that Jesus is about to claim is absolute nonsense or it is the truth. He is God's son. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then this passage tells us that we should be amazed at the Son, amazed at his works. We should give him great honor, and his claim should lead us to believe in, to worship, and praise him all the more. That's the application up front, so please bear it in mind throughout So here's the claim. Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He, He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The son isn't independent. He's not autonomous. He doesn't act on his own initiative. He's submissive. He only does what he sees his father doing. And what the father does, the son sees. The actions of the son are in step with the actions of the father. This must mean that the son and the father are equal. That's Jesus' claim. Because if he can both see and do what the father does... Well, only an equal could do that. 
Almost every day, I'll do something that William, my, my son, will see, it, and it doesn't really matter what it is. It, it could be throw a tissue in the bin from the other side of the room, hopefully successfully. It, it could be walking uh, through a door and just touching the top of it. It could be cleaning the bathroom. doesn't matter what it is. He will see what I am doing, and he will say, Daddy, will I do that? And what he means, it's a bit of a mixture of, am I allowed to do that? Often the answer is no. <laughs> and am I able to do that? But he can't. He's only three. In that sense, he is not my equal. Not so here with the Father and the Son. The Son both sees and does what the Father does. And in verse 20, we see the reason the Son sees what the Father does. Because the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. He doesn't hide things away from him. So let's just, let's just make sure that we're following this first part of the argument. Jesus' claim. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. The Son sees what the Father does and does it himself. Because the Son can do nothing by himself. Therefore, the Son is equal with the Father. At the end of verse 20, the Jewish leaders are told that greater things have yet to come. They will see them with their own eyes and they'll be amazed. In that way, the Son is the one who reveals the Father. We saw that back in John chapter 1 verse 18. Just flick back a couple of pages. At the very beginning of John's introduction, he said, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. There's no rivalry here. No, the works that the Son does reveal the Father to us. And if you look at verse 21, you'll see there is an example of how verse 19 to 20 work out. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, let's just pause. The Father raises the dead and gives them life. He loves the Son, so He shows the Son what He does. The Son sees it and the Son does it. Second half of the verse, even so, the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. And we've seen that, seen that throughout John's Gospel, haven't we? Uh, back in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, Jesus is indiscriminately offering life to people. Uh, that is the work that he's come to do. Uh, but then in verse 22, we see a distinction in their work. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, this is a huge claim. The Old Testament taught that God alone is judge. All the way back in Genesis 18, and if you were here last night, this very thing was referenced. God is called the judge of all the earth, the referee. God is the judge, but Jesus willingly gives this work to the Son. Again, if only God can judge, then Jesus here is claiming equality with God. 
At the start of verse 22, you may well have a moreover at the beginning of that verse. It would probably be better translated as another four, the fourth four in this argument from Jesus. The son can judge because he gives life. That is to say, there is a need to recognize that Jesus is judge before he can give you life. Or the son is given the work of judgment so that he is recognized as the one to go to for life. There's a tension here with John chapter 3 verse 17, which says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But, But this tension is exactly what Jesus is playing on. This time, he has come to give life, but he will come again to judge. And how you respond to Jesus as life giver will directly affect the outcome when he comes again as judge. And in verse 23, the purpose of all of this is so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. There's no rivalry between them. That is the Father's purpose. Jesus has outlined his claim. The Son is equal with the Father. The Son gives life and brings judgment. The Son is not a rival God. He's not a second God. He's in perfect relationship with his Father. Uh, The second section here of Jesus' claim is made up of only one verse, verse 24. Uh, Just look at verse 24. Uh, This verse acts as the practical outworking of verse 21 and 22. And this is the point at which Jesus wants the Jewish leaders to take action. Verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Here, Jesus no longer talks about the Son in the third person, but is clearly claiming that he is the Son. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me. And doing this leads to life. There's a change in doing so. There's no judgment. You've crossed from death to life. Now, as readers of John's gospel, this is the point at which we have to go back to the healing at the pool. This is why John chose to include this sign at this point. Because by including this healing, John proves that Jesus will do what he claims he will do in verse 24. He is truly equal with God Because healing the man at the pool is a small-scale version of verse 24. Of all the sick people beside the pool, Jesus chooses this one man. He's an invalid, the sick one. He's been sick for 38 years. He's standing in the place of death, so to speak. And yet with one word from Jesus, everything changes. He's no longer the sick one but the healed one. He's moved from death to life. Jesus can do what he claims in verse 24 because he's already done it in micro form. In verse 1 to 15, he spoke 
and the man crossed from sickness to health. So, by hearing and believing his word, we too can cross from death to life. Uh, but you might have noticed there was one vital piece of the story we skipped over when we went through it at the beginning. It's in verse 14. Please look at verse 14. When Jesus finds the man in the temple, what does he say to him? See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What, what could possibly be worse than a 38-year-long debilitating illness? Well, Jesus here says that the judgment from him would be worse. And it is the sin of men that Jesus will come again to judge. We've all risen up in rebellion against God. And we're all deserving of his judgment. And sadly, we can't just stop sinning. But here is the good news understatement. Before the Father sends his Son as judge, he sent his Son as life giver. The climactic work that the Father sent his Son to do was to go to the cross where he, the Son, the giver of life, died. And although he was the judge, he himself was judged for our sin in order that we need not be judged. And now, because he's no longer dead, but alive, we can receive life from him. And we can cross over, not just from sickness to health, but because he's proved he can do that, we can come to him and cross over from death to life. And that is the challenge of this passage. If Jesus' claim of equality with God is true, then you have to come to him for life or else face him as judge for your rebellion against his father. In verse 25, Jesus begins to close his claim. He's wrapping up what he's saying. He reiterates what he's just said in verse 24, but it's clear that the life he offers is not simply pie in the sky when you die, but is life that is full and can be experienced here and now. And in verse 26, we see the reason why Jesus can give life. Uh, just look at verse 26. Let me read this. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, th this verse is just a key verse in our understanding about God. God has life in himself. 
He's uncreated. He's from himself. He's self-existent. He has perfect life in and of himself. There's no one or nothing greater than him. He's all-sufficient. He has all that he needs within himself. He doesn't need us. Nothing that anyone or anything could possibly give him will add anything to him. His name is revealed as I am who I am. He's always been. He will always be. Everything that has life has life from him. He's the creator. And if he hadn't created, nothing would be that is. Uh, Herman Bavink, great name, was a late 20th century Dutch theologian. Great name, great introduction to the party, right? Hi, I'm Herman, 20th century Dutch theologian. This is what he said. He is supreme in everything. Supreme being, supreme goodness, supreme truth, supreme beauty. He is the perfect, the highest, the most excellent being, All being is contained in him. He is a boundless ocean of being. That's what it means to say that the Father has life in himself. And we see that the Son has been granted that same life. The Son has life in himself. It's not that he was created. There was never a time when he wasn't. The Son and the Father are equal. That's what Jesus is claiming. But the Son has the same quality of life as his Father. Life in himself. And it's because of that that he can give us life. Life that is wholly dependent on him. And in verse 27... Jesus gives us another reason why he has been given authority to judge. Because he's the son of man. As the one who is fully God and fully man, we sang that earlier. The one who walked into the throne room of the ancient of days, but has also walked the same earth that we now walk on. He is uniquely qualified to judge. Verse 25, focus on life here and now. Verse 28 and 29, focus on what's still to come, either judgment or life. And as Jesus closes his claim here in verse 30, he does exactly the same thing that he did in verse 19. He says, by myself, I can do nothing. And he applies what he said in verse 19 to 20, uh, not this time to giving life, but to bringing judgment. But it's a judgment that will be just, because he doesn't wield it independently. He is the son of his father, equal with God. John 5, 19 to 30. That is quite the claim. Jesus has said that he is equal with God and he works to give life and bring judgment. Mad? Ridiculous? Nonsensical? Stupid? Or the truth? Do you believe him? Do you accept his claim? Because that is the question, not just from this passage, but the question for life. And 
we only have a moment. But in this last part of the chapter, Jesus flags up at least five testimonies who will evidence that he is who he says he is. He's not like Prince's potential children who claimed that he was their father without any evidence. Uh, Jesus has testimony galore. The first one's in verse 32. That's the testimony of the Father. Verse 33 to 34, Jesus points them to John the Baptist. In verse 36, Jesus points them to his own works. In verse 37, that's a reference to to generally all the Father's testimony about the Son. In verse 39 to 40, Jesus points them to the Bible. And in verse 46, He points them to one specific author within the Bible, Moses. Oh, I wish we had more time to go through each of them. But but do you notice the repeated theme? Just notice how the Jewish leaders respond to each of these separate testimonies. They reject each and every one. Verse 35, they chose to enjoy John's light only for a time. Verse 36 doesn't show how they reject the testimony of Jesus' works. But we saw it back in verse 10 and 12 and 16 and 18. They tried to kill him. Verse 37, you have never heard the voice of the Father or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. Verse 39, the Jewish leaders think they understand the Bible, but because they don't understand that the Bible says that the place to find life is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, they've missed the whole point. And finally in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. Jesus has made his claim. He is equal with his father. And he will one day come to judge. But now he comes to bring life. And his claim is backed up by testimony upon testimony upon testimony. Testimony that we haven't had the time to look at in detail this morning. If you would like to look at any of these testimonies further in more detail, there are a whole host of ways that you can do so. Ask the person who brought you here this morning if they would read the start of the Gospel of John with you. We've got this this great book that you could read together. Just the first few verses of John's Gospel. You only need to do it once. If you conclude that he really is mad... Don't read any more. But if you conclude that he's true, then read on. Uh, This Thursday evening, uh, we begin a Christianity Explored course here, where you can spend more time evaluating Jesus' claims and all of the testimonies about him. Uh, The Jewish leaders here at the end of this chapter, uh, they've dismissed all of the testimony and rejected his claim. And Jesus pronouncement on them is that they will not cross over from death to life. They will remain dead and they will be judged. But even right now, you can weigh up Jesus' claim. Look at the testimony and believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, equal with God, and by believing You can have life grounded in that life that he has of himself. Life in his name. Uh, Let me pray. Father, 
It is breathtaking that we can, can call you Father. Because for those of us who have believed in your Son, you have made us your children. Father, for those of us who know you, may we exult in that. May we rejoice in that this morning. May we luxuriate in the truth that we have heard. And may we, like the disciples that we see in this gospel, increasingly believe. May we praise and worship you more. Father, for those who do not yet know you, we pray that this morning they would come to your Son as life giver. Father, we thank you for your word. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.